Hi, this is Ron Gilbert and Wakely. Hi, this is Ron Gilbert and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast. Every week we talk about what we did last week and what we're going to do this week. But today it is Friday Questions Day. This is where Gary and David and I answer all your questions from the blog. Well, maybe not all your questions. Hopefully enough of your questions that it Only the ones we want to answer. Yeah, only the ones we really want to answer. So I think Gary is going to uh, read the questions. And I do apologize for the uh, podcast being late this week, but I had a horrible cold, which you can probably almost still hear a little bit of my of my cold. So, so Ron, inquiring minds want to know how you're feeling. I'm, I'm, it's definitely over, but I'm, I'm still, you know, a little bit stuffy. It was, you know, it was a cold. It wasn't, it wasn't sick. So that little picture of Reyes throwing up was probably a little bit inaccurate. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't actually vomiting. I just had a horrible head cold and just felt like crap and watched a lot of Star Trek: D Space Nine. <laughs> you watching that like on um, Netflix? Netflix, or... yeah. And does that work? Yeah, well, I think you know, DS Nine is my go-to show when I'm, when I'm sick. Because I, I have actually haven't seen it before, so it is it's somewhat interesting uh, to just kind of work through all the episodes. I actually just watched the first very first pilot episode of Star Trek um, last week. Next gen or the very 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 first. Oh wow! Oh, you mean the what is that? Is that like the Menagerie one or is yeah, that, yeah. Uh, yeah it was it was, and and I'm sure I watched that a few times before, but I don't think I've ever watched it on an HD TV set, and it was crazy how terrible the sets and effects look and everything and even though it's you know it's filmed it was just yeah, i could see the seams and the carpet and the grass carpets and it's like like a high school production it, really <laughs> is, is that that where they took it and like split it up into two episodes kind of thing or is that a different one i think they they ended up with a uh they went back to it in a later episode and had flashbacks or something. But you're talking about the real one. You, you saw the actual pilot, not the not the spliced together. Episode. Right, the actual pilot. The actual oh, okay. pilot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think I've actually seen the actual yeah, pilot. It's probably worth watching to see how far things have come and and how how did it ever get a green light? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of pilots for TV shows that I go, man, how did this ever get green light? But the show itself ended up being quite good. Well, it's interesting because they they threw out pretty much all the actors except for two. Spock. Spock, and then um, Major Barrett, who's... Yeah, but she played way. a different role, though, right? You no, know, well, she was the computer voice, also. Yeah. Well, she nurse, was the nurse. Nurse Chapel. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was uh, reading somewhere that she's, like, the only person that's been in every single Star Trek episode. Or her voice. Yeah, her voice, yeah, because she does the computer voice. She's been in all the series, everything. Okay, so let's get on with the questions. Enough about Star Trek. Let's talk, let's talk, let's forget it's the so easy to get done. derailed with Star Trek, isn't it? <laughs> I guess. All right, so Gary is going to do the honors of the reading today. Okay. Gary, take it away. So the first question is from Sundancer, and the question is, will there be a usable toilet in the game or a microwave or a broom? My answer is that is uh, two out of three. But we're not going to say which two. Yep. You'll have to figure that out yourself. Okay, the next question is from Matt. The art and animation that I've seen has a really nice lighting quality to it. I understand some of it may be painted into the background, but there are obviously some other lighting tricks going on as well. Is the dynamic lighting made up of elements that are drawn and overlaid, or does the game engine use spotlights or point lights to illuminate the art? Well, it's not drawn, and I assume that you guys can talk more to actually the technical um, aspects of how we're actually doing that, but it's all being done dynamically in and programmed 
programmatically, correct? Well, I think it's half and half, right? I think Mark just has an amazing sense of light, right? So a lot of the stuff that you see in the backgrounds, you know, the sunsets and stuff, I mean, that's all hand-drawn by Mark. But there are a lot of um, point lights and spotlights in the game. So as the characters, you know, walk underneath, um, you know, street lights and things like that, they're dynamically being lit. So the characters are dynamically being lit, but the backgrounds are all hand-drawn lighting. There's a couple of times, a few times where I, I would get an object from the artist where the art, the object just was the wrong color lighting for, for the rest of the room. And I would just apply light to that because you can turn that on or off with the specific objects. So sometimes I'll just turn lighting on for that and that just fixes it. Oh, to dynamically. I guess you can't really dynamically light the actual background. I don't think the engine right. allows that. Have no spotlights. Mark, I mean, Mark did go through the trouble of actually doing different various layers of lighting depending on if lights are on and off. And there's like many, many layers on some of those rooms, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. it's actually crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and there's crazy. some rooms that just really, and there's some rooms where I'm actually fading the lit layers up and down with alpha levels to match the lighting as it changes. So sometimes it gets complex, but it's really all pre drawn. Okay, so Cole Trickle asks, is the body in the lake the only sprite graphic that has the original art style from the Kickstarter pitch? Will it be changed in the release? And the answer to that is, um, it is the only sprite I believe that we actually just lifted from the Kickstarter and have not changed at all because we do have some, um, there's a joke about the body pixelating the longer it lays around. So we've kept it at the same low resolution that I drew in originally for the Kickstarter pitch. But I think that's the only thing we've left that way, correct? Yeah, it's the only thing I can think of. There might be that one object um, that we... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, shh. Ixnay and the object yeah, don't, don't. <laughs> Red Phantom asks, If a huge movie or TV studio came to you guys asking to make an adventure game based on one of their intellectual properties, what would you decide to do? I think that we're mercenaries, and so they would just, if they backed up a big truck full of money, I think that's how they'd get us to do it. And, you know, maybe Ron has too much um, integrity to do that, but me and David certainly don't. I, you know, I wouldn't do it, but I don't think it's a matter of integrity. I think it's just a matter of I don't find that particularly interesting. What I find interesting about creating games is building the world and building the stories and creating the character. And when you're working with someone else's IP, all that's already done for you. So to me, the most interesting part of making a game is gone if I'm working with someone else's IP. I've done it three times on three different projects. And the the big thing for me is I have to be really passionate about the, the IP to do it. So like if it, say if it were a Star Trek or something or something which I really loved a lot and I want to live in that universe and build my own part of it, um, I might be willing to. But I also hate the, um, the feeling of someone else being able to change what I want to do. Okay, so basically David and Ron have integrity, and then you guys can just back that big truck of money up to my house. <laughs> unless, it's, unless it's from Star Trek. I might do it then. Well, how big is the truck of money? I mean, there, there, there is a point that the truck of money is so big that I will do the licensed product. It's got to be a really big truck of money, Ron. It's like, it's like 7.6 shitloads of, of trucks of money, you know, or something like that. Haster asks, will there be a way to deduce which phone numbers are no answer and which ones do have a voicemail attached to them? 
Yeah, there is a way to do that. Uh, the entries in the phone book are colored a little bit differently. So the ones that have no voicemail messages are kind of in a lighter gray, and the um, the phone numbers that actually have messages are in kind of a dark a darker black. So you can see which numbers have voicemail messages and which ones don't. And did you add the thing? Yeah, you added the thing with the checkbox or checkmark. Yeah, if so, if you've called the number, a little check mark appears in the phone book that says you've heard their voicemail. So you can kind of keep track of which voicemails you've listened to and haven't listened to. It's kind of a magical phone book. Vegetaman asks, what kind of snacks and beverages do you guys and gals enjoy while working? Heavy on the caffeine, i.e. Mountain Dew, energy drinks, water, Cheetos, Doritos, mixed nuts, etc. Um, you know, I, I still eat a bunch of crap when I'm doing this. I eat like candy bars, but I, I just drink regular water. Uh, you know, I don't eat a lot of granola bars, and maybe I'll eat a piece of fruit occasionally. I'm sure David eats healthier than that. I don't know if Ron does. I drink a lot of water, and I, uh, I have a coffee in the morning, and I have a coffee in the afternoon. So it's one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Other than that, I, I drink mostly water. I don't, I guess I don't have a lot of snacks usually. I don't snack a lot. If I have snacks near my computer, then I just mindlessly eat it, so I don't do that. I, I usually, I'm usually drinking water, I might drink tea in the morning, um, and I keep the almonds, which I love, down in the kitchen, so I have to get up and actually work to get to them and don't just mindlessly eat them, and that works. A little bowl of dog treats next to me. <laughs> and occasionally it's like if I'm like really focused, I'll kind of reach in and like grab some of the dog treats before I go, oh, wait, those are dog treats. Um, the next question is from David. What's your podcast recording editing tool chain? I know you mentioned a while ago you switched to a new tool. So what we do for the recording, we use a, uh, a website that's called Cast. And you go to the website and then it allows different people to kind of, you know, phone in. And the thing that I really like about the cast website, as opposed to Skype, how we were doing it before, is that it keeps everyone on a separate channel. Where in Skype, I was on one channel, but David and Gary were mixed together on a second channel. But with cast, uh, David and Gary and I are all on separate channels. And so it's really nice for editing because I, can, I don't have to worry about, you know, people talking over each other. So I, I do like cast. I like it quite a bit. Um, and then after um, I download the recordings in cast, then I, I put them into ProLogic, which is the, a, Mac, um, a Mac tool. And then I just edit them uh, in ProLogic and then kick out MP3s. And then I go through and adjust the volumes after that. And then they get uploaded to um, SoundCloud. That is pretty much our process for our very amateurish sounding podcast. The next question is from Derek Reisdorf. What are some pros and cons of crowdsourcing some of the game's content? The occult book titles, the answering machine messages, and the library literature. And could you see yourselves crowdsourcing content in future projects? Yeah, the crowdfunding stuff is interesting. And I think where, where crowdfunding content works is when you need a bulk of content. You know, if you need just 10 things for your game, it's probably not worth the effort to crowdfund those. But when you need 100 things or, I mean, in the case of the library books, you know, we got over 1,000 books. So I think if you need a lot of bulk content for stuff, then I think uh, crowdsourcing uh, works really well. Some of the downsides is you have you do have to read through it all. You know, you can't just 
take everything everybody does and stick it in the game. You have to read it. You have to make sure that, you know, the quality is up there. You have to make sure that it's, you know, there's nothing unacceptable or offensive or, uh, you know, copyright issues. So, you know, it's it, crowdsourced stuff doesn't come for free, but I think it does work well if you just need a bulk of kind of interesting things in your game. But I could definitely see doing it in the future, I think so. Brian Ruff would like to know, do you guys have any rituals to fight stress during crunch time? Exercise, video games, Cheetos? Yeah, for me it's walks, you know, getting out of here and just like getting getting loose of the of being in front of the computer. Yeah, I think getting up from the computer is probably the most important thing. Is just not sitting in front of the computer. I know that, that at least for me, I have a nice area around here that I can walk around in, like forests and stuff like that. David might have that too. I don't know about Ron, but you know, definitely getting outside helps me. Yeah, I go to the gym probably five times a week. So you know, I'm I go to the gym in the mornings, usually in the mornings. Um, so that's really not a stress combatter thing, but I you know I get a lot of exercise with that and and running and stuff. But I think during the day, it's just I think that's where my coffee comes in because, you know, I get my coffee at two o'clock every single day and that, that just gets me up from my computer and I have to walk several blocks to go get the coffee and it just breaks up the, uh, you know, it, it breaks up the day a little bit. But I'm not, I am not the best person at dealing with, you know, stress at crunch time. You know, I get very, very stressed out and I should probably do a much better job of dealing with it than I actually do. My other two things, since we have a dog and the dog is really active dog, that forces me to get out at least once a day for a long walk. Um, I also tend to veg out at night with, with television shows or something. You know, the kind of a routine of watching a few things with my wife or after she falls asleep, you know, I'll just watch a couple more things. Finally, watching TV shows at night, which I do as well to kind of shut my brain down, actually increases my stress because I'm sitting there watching the TV show and I'm going, I should really be working. <laughs> I mean, you guys know that that stuff makes it harder to fall asleep later on if you've done any sleep study information and stuff like that, all of those, that light stuff, what it does to your eyes. So you're supposed to stop doing that, I'm going to say, a couple hours, maybe like three hours before you're actually wanting to go to sleep. Do you know, are you aware of that? I, I, I don't believe in science. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of that, but I, I fall asleep right away anyway, so it doesn't affect me. Or maybe because I'm watching, I'm so late that I just crash. Um, also, I might come back and work for another few hours, which is kind of cool because then I'm on the same, I can actually talk to Octavi in Spain if I have any things to cover because like my midnight or whatever is is like nine o'clock or sometimes i see get check-ins for you like at one in the morning yeah I'm like what is david doing i know and then, I, then i'll go to sleep <laughs> yeah i got up i couldn't sleep last night and i got up around two in the morning and i and i debugged this weird little save load bug so i, I did that last night you won't be doing too much of that near the end of the project. I'm hoping that we, you know, pace ourselves well enough where you won't be up all night long, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Katie Parsons asks, will there be any points of no return that force the player to start the game from the beginning or an early save point? No, there are no points in the game where you can get yourself screwed. Actually, I take that back. There is, there is one point in the game where you can screw yourself, but... It's kind of a joke, and it's very obvious, and I, nobody's going to be caught by surprise. 
um, buy it. And we actually am doing a save there. I took that out, actually. Oh, you cut the save out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. oh, Ron's got that real man mode thing going on there. <laughs> okay. Um, Cormac asks, hey, I'm a bit late to the podcast. Catching up. I just hit April today. I'm curious about the sound in the game. David has mentioned adding sound effects a few times in the podcast, and I was wondering if this is a role he's taken on because of the nature of Thimbleweed's development, or whether this was something he used to do at LucasArts as well. Did the role of sound and audio work land with the programmers then? Um, yeah, well, back then, when I was doing games, the sound effects work was real, you know, it's pretty hard. I mean, you usually, usually had someone else do them because it was all programmatic. I mean, you can just grab a, a sample of something and drop it in uh, back in the in the 80s. As we, you know, we had bigger and bigger games or CDs or DVDs or whatever. I'm sure that changed. Um, so I think I started doing it on this game just because I wanted a few placeholder sounds. And I guess Ron liked them enough that I kind of fell onto my shoulders to do a lot of them. And sound is one of the areas of the game that I wish we would have had a budget. It's like yeah. I would have loved to have been able to hire, you know, a part-time sound person that came through and just added sounds and did the audio ambience for the rooms. But it's just it's just something we really just didn't have the budget for. I think on a future game, I would absolutely budget a role for that person in the game. I mean, I think we're doing an okay job. I, I think the game is like filled with good solid B level sounds, but you know, it's the, it's not A level stuff. Yeah, I I was working with some with a with a friend who is a really good sound designer and listening to how fast they could do really amazing stuff by combining things from his you know billions of gigabytes of library into brand new sounds. Um, were beyond what I would usually imagine. And he'd catch things that should have sounds I never even thought of. So, so um, I mean, I, I'm hoping we have time to do another more thorough sound pass before we lock things down. Because there are a lot of times where I just would kind of put something in as a placeholder. Well, after we get done with content lock, you know, that's, that's kind of a point that I think we can go back and pepper sounds in for stuff. You know, because I kind of define content lock as you know, we could ship the game, right? It doesn't mean we can't, you know, add some extra things after content lock, assuming they're safe, you know, that we're not massively restructuring code, but things like sound effects are relatively safe. So after content lock, if, you know, we want to do a pass and add more sounds and stuff, we can do that. And there's, you know, the places where we have a sound which we used elsewhere and it's it works okay there, but it'd be better to have a, a unique one there. Okay, Teddy Fine asks, how do you organize the logic for all the puzzles in your code? Do you have a big array of booleans to keep track and evaluate the state of the puzzles game? Uh, yeah, keeping track of that stuff in code, it's it's just a big mess of stuff. You know, it's like I wish there was a big array of booleans and everything was organized, but it's just not, you know, kind of the way that, um, you know, the way that the game is and it's it's very complicated it's not just a big state machine but the only way you can really keep track of it is just kind of hand coding each and every little thing so it's it's kind of a mess but in a good way i, I don't say that in a bad way well we do have like the closest thing might be you know the the one file that has all our global variables in it 
and then you know that's pretty heavily commented which helps because I'll forget what what I use that one for and I can go back and say okay if this is equal to one then this is what's supposed to happen so yeah I was looking at that file the other day and there's like there's a bunch of variables that we don't even use anymore yeah just because you know we changed the code or we changed the puzzle and it's just filled with these unused variables but I'm afraid to remove any of them you know because you, you never know what weird thing might happen so I think we'll just leave them Krisky Walker Hi guys, how much more difficult is creating an adventure game with multiple playable main characters like Thimbleweed Part as opposed to a game with a single playable character? Uh, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, even I know the answer to that. It's not only the puzzles, you know, because you have to think about you know what, what different what different characters can do with different puzzles and etc. But it's just it's a lot of a lot of extra dialogue, you know, because people need to react differently to things. It's you know, dealing with the fact that you might have one character over here and another character over here. And it's just, it's really complicated. And I, I think that, you know, if we were going to do another adventure game after this one, I would highly recommend we do not do multiple play playable characters. Find that just using even like two characters just balloons it out of control? Or, or is it, you know, the permutations of up to five characters? Or what? where do you kind of draw the line? Well, it's kind of exponential. You know, it's like, you know, two characters is twice as hard and three characters is four times as hard and, you know, four characters is eight times as hard. It just it just exponentially shoots up. So, you know, if you do two characters, that's a little bit easier. But, you know, it's still it's still a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work to do all that stuff. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of extra writing. It also increases, obviously, the testing time because then the testers have to go through it again with each combination. At least it's better than Maniac Mansion where um, there you could have a com different combinations of characters through each playthrough. And here at least you know that there's there's only five characters and that's not going to change. We didn't have any testers, so that was yeah. so it was fine. It wasn't a problem. I can actually remember in Maniac Match when Ron was going, and we'll do five characters and have multiple endings and it'll be really cool. And then I remember the look in his eyes when he realized, you know, it was maybe what, like six months later, what he had like signed up to do. <laughs> right. And then I didn't learn my lesson and here we are with Thimbleweed Park. Okay. You didn't learn it with the cave either, did you? I didn't. So how many times is it going to take for you to learn your lesson, Ron? Is this going to be it maybe? Never. I, I tend to forget. I have a short memory. It's like two years from now. I'm like, eight, eight playable characters. We can do it. Let's do it. Um, there, there's one thing we are doing, which is helping, is um, there's some areas where um, maybe only certain characters will go into those locations. So at least for some areas, it kind of locks it down a bit. Yeah, it's also trying to think of logical reasons why the characters won't go in there you know we can't just have somebody just say oh i don't want to go in there right there has to be kind of a character or story reason why they won't go in there so when players are, are playing the game they don't feel that 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 blockage is arbitrary you know they feel like oh it makes sense that you know ransom won't go into the cemetery or something okay philip asks when telling a story that is set in the past, that opens up the possibility, temptation, perhaps to make clever prophetic references or jokes about the future that lies between then and now. Has that come up during the writing of Thimbleweed Park? And if so, how did you deal with it? It's come up a couple of times in my writing. I, I do have I do have several jokes that, you know, they don't work if you don't kind of understand, 
you know, the, the, the way, you know, history played out over the intervening, you know, 20 odd years. So yeah, I definitely have done some jokes like that and they're fun. They're fun to do that kind of stuff. Jesper Hansen asks, you've been very open on the blog about the whole process of building the game. Have you ever regretted that you started out being so open? i.e. too many stupid repeated questions you've had to deal with, writing blog posts, doing podcasts, taking up too much of your time, etc. Yeah, it is It is a lot of work to do something like a Kickstarter, you know, where you are expected to be open and to share stuff with people. But I think there's kind of two sides to that question. There's you know, there's one side is, you know, the time that we spend blogging and the time we spend doing the podcast and answering questions and all that. Um, and that stuff does definitely take up time. But I think kind of the the more important part is that because we did the Kickstarter and we kind of talked about what we were building, we kind of have to build that. And I think it's a very normal part of the creative process to change what you're making, right? It's like you very rarely go, hey, I have an idea and then go build that idea. You know, usually you say, hey, I have an idea, and then that idea just morphs and changes and then becomes the thing that you finally make. And I do I do find doing the, the Kickstarter type open development stuff a little bit constraining um, in that respect, because there are things that I don't think we can change about Thimbleweed Park, right? Even if we, we all thought it was the right thing to do, that we just couldn't make those changes. Because, you know, I feel like we've committed at some level to doing what we're going to do. And I think that like early access games really get into this problem, you know, is, is they is they have a game, they put it out in early access, and then the designers are kind of responding to what they're seeing and they're making changes. And a lot of the early access people just become really upset with that. But it's just it's a normal part of making games. And so I think that's the one part that I actually don't enjoy, you know, about the the openness. Like I like the blogging, I like the podcast, I like all that, but kind of, you know, having our hands tied in, in some respects about how much we can change the game, I, I do find a little bit limiting. But, you, but you're still thrilled with the way the game's coming out, right, Ron? It's still... It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think the game's come out really good. And I think we have made some changes, but I think we've had to spend a lot of time explaining those changes. Um, and I think that's good. It's it, it's informational. And, and I think, you know, people enjoy hearing about that stuff. But, you know, I mean, I can think of a small handful of changes that I would probably have made to the game that um, I, I really, you know, that we can't make right now because of, of, of what we've done. I don't think that it makes the game any worse. I don't know if the game, you know, might have been a whole lot better with those changes, but it just would have been very hard to make those changes. I think what's, what's interesting sometimes is when we make a change and we live with it for a month or two and then you announce it and you start seeing feedback from people who have gotten used to something being a certain way and by then we're just like, well, it's, so, it's so strange because for us, it's like old news already. Yeah. I, I never saw anybody care so much about, you know, the color of text or something like that, but <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just, it's, it's interesting what people, you know, will talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think David's point's interesting, right? Because we'll make a change 
And then you, even within the team, there's kind of a reaction of like, Ooh, I don't know if I like this. And then, you know, three days later, it's fine and everybody loves it. And then we get the same reaction from the fans, you know, that the team might've had. And then, you know, three or four days later, they're fine with it as well. So it's like, we kind of go through that process twice. Christian would like to know in which state is Thimbleweed Park located? Well, you actually get to decide. There's there's a point in the game where you kind of make what seems to be a simple little choice about something and it kind of sets the state that the town is in. Steve Borden would like to know what type of clown is Ransom inspired by? Is he a Krusty the Clown type? An old school bozo? Is he more of a triumph from Conan since he's an insult comic? What comedian clown can we expect him to remind us of? Yeah, I think that Ransom is probably a little bit more like Triumph from from Conan, uh, certainly than he is Krusty. You know, a lot of people, you know, think he's Krusty, uh, but he's really not. He's certainly not Bozo. So I think he's a little he's a little bit of Triumph, but he's he's kind of a a complete redeemable asshole. So I think that makes him a little bit different than than any of those other clowns. So is that it? Yep, I think that is all of our questions. At least all we we're going to answer this time around. I can tell that, you know, talking so much, my throat is really starting to hurt a little bit. Promise to um, get this up by tomorrow or cut this comment by me. Well, I'm going to try to get it up tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to. I'm going to Argentina on Wednesday for a conference and I'll be gone for like a week. So I may actually edit this on the plane. So it, it may not go up until um, Thursday. So okay, well, we'll be see. careful in Argentina, Ron. Oh, well, I've never been. All right, talk to you guys later. So the debates tonight. Oh, yeah, well... Uh, who's, who's watching the debate? I'm going to watch it because I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> but isn't that like, you know, looking at a car wreck? Well, do you, do you really want to look at the car wreck? I, um, I, I, well, here's the here's the, the thing. I mean, I know I don't have to watch it live because I know that everywhere I look tomorrow, it will be all over all, you know, the Internet and everything else. So it's not like I couldn't, like, catch every minute you know nuance of it and see it you know analyzed and everything else tomorrow but i kind of want to see it live as it happens yeah see i think i think i'm with you on that though gary it's like i'm not going to watch it but i'll just i'll just look at the highlight stuff or maybe i'll follow it on twitter see what other people are saying but i have no desire to actually watch the debate itself i think we're gonna we're gonna watch it i know annie has the popcorn ready Yeah, but but I can I can see you and Annie like throwing popcorn at the screen. You know, what I mean? it's kind of like you know you guys are usually calm the whole time, but I, I think you're going to get a little worked up tonight, David. Yeah, I think the police are going to get called to the Fox House. <laughs> I actually had my annual physical last week, and my blood pressure is higher than it than it's ever been before. Usually, it's you had to make sure that your heart was okay to watch the debate, David. <laughs> No, usually it's like really low, but I haven't decided whether it's um, how much of it's Trump and how much of it is, you know, approaching deadlines for this game. So um, I need to relax a bit more. Well, go walk your dog. Yeah, walk the dog.